Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, Heidi ho fellow podcaster. This is the Theater Podcast with Alan Seals, and I'm your host, Alan Seals. Our guest for this episode is Gordon Greenberg. The story of his career, the things that he talks about as we're going through this episode, it, it, it just name drop after name drop, not in a bad way. It just, he's mentioning all of these Broadway legends who just like him were just starting out at the time, and now he has become this successful Broadway director and writer and producer and teacher, along with all the other people that he started out with who are now just massive, massive stars in their own way in their in the space here. It's incredible. He took lots of chances to fail early and pivot and to find out what he really wanted to do. I, I love people who have the the chutzpah, as he says, to take chances and and fail early, fail fast. I love to try that. I love to do that. And it's something that uh, is a lot easier said than done, but you'll hear his story. He did it. Find me online in all the normal places on social media, especially threads and TikTok and Instagram and YouTube. That's basically all of them. Leave a five-star review wherever you're listening, please. They help the podcast grow. Join me on Patreon. Keep the lights on here. And now, everybody, please enjoy this episode with Gordon Greenberg. Here you go. One, two, three. I am so excited to introduce our guest for today's episode. This man I've known for several years now through the podcast space, but turns out he's more than just a fun voice on a Zoom screen. He's actually quite an accomplished writer, director, producer, and teacher, in addition to being just an overall amazing guy. He's collaborated with people like Zachary Quinto, Calista Flockhart, Antonio Banderas, Stephen Schwartz, Steve Rosen, Neil Patrick Harris, Jerry Seinfeld, and Gary Marshall. He's created multi-award-winning shows all over the world at places like the Geffen Playhouse and the Old Globe Theater, created musical adaptations for Nickelodeon, the Disney Channel, and Universal Pictures, 
created TV commercials for J. Walter Thompson, one of the largest creative agencies in the world, and now his latest project, Dracula, a comedy of terrors, just opened off-Broadway at New World Stages to amazing reviews. Woo! Gordon Greenberg, welcome to the Theater Podcast. Thank you. I feel so old listening to that. That's like, a, it, it's, this is your life. It's just <laughs> like going back over the last 20 years so much stuff. I should just rename this podcast to The Ghost of Christmas Past. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We will review your life. This is the world without you. Where I'll would take it be? It. Okay, well let's okay. Let's start then with little little Gordo. Um you could also say don't ever call me Gordo again. You may. But Actually you, everyone you know where they all call me Gordo is uh in England. Really? Uh, where I work a fair bit, but people love saying Gordo there. They must have seen like Stand by Me or some movie that like somehow implanted that in their brains because almost universally people there go in for the nickname. Huh. And I'm I, fine with it. I just saw Shucked the other day again. So I, I, I almost said Gordy, but I went with Gordo. So we'll oh, right. <laughs> I, I respond to all of it. G, G-Town. Uh, okay, G-Town. Let's see. So, so little G. Little G, little double G. <laughs> just just uh, keep coming up with new ones. <laughs> <laughs> little little Gordy Greens, little Gordy Greens as a as a baby boy. Um, I mean, what were you like, and where were you like as a child that uh, got you into this wonderful space of the performance in the theater? You know, it's funny. I always ask uh, when I'm working with students uh, for people to think back to their first creative moment. What was the moment you knew you wanted to be? on stage or that you wanted to tell stories or that, you know, you just had too much childhood trauma to not process it. <laughs> so you had um, to go on stage. It's, it, it, it is a moment. And I remember it so clearly when I was in second grade, um, just being on stage with a pillowcase over my head and getting applause and thinking, I want to go through life with a pillowcase over my head basically, <laughs> and be rewarded for it. Um, but that that second grade teacher, um, who I still remember, named Mrs. Fenton, um, and she had us dress up, and she celebrated uh, individuality in a way that um, I guess in kindergarten and first grade they didn't. So I was <laughs> excited by that, and I, I jumped in, and I knew I wanted to be um, in theater. Uh, Right away, really. My parents, for my seventh birthday, took me to see Grease, the original production on Broadway. And at that point, I only knew there was Grease. I did not know there were other Broadway shows. So my plan was, all right, when I get older, I will be in Grease. And then when I'm too old to be in Grease, I'll direct Grease. And then um, I'll maybe produce Grease when I get rich. But all I just thought Grease. Grease was the entire genre. Um, at that point, I hadn't seen... Um, Shenandoah, which was probably playing next door. Um, but it was all I knew. And I would run up and down my suburban New York uh, block telling everyone, I'm going back to Greece um, to go see it again. And they thought I was going naturally to like Athens or more appropriately Mykonos. Um, but, uh, <laughs> I, I wasn't. I, I knew almost nothing of the country Greece. And then flash forward a few years, um, I, you know, I'm reading the New York Times or my parents' copy of it. And in the back of the magazine section, there are ads for summer camps. And um, the one for Stage Door Manor stood out to every young, aspiring, 
sparkly thespian type. So I saw Stage Door, and all I wanted was to go there. And my parents kept saying, you cannot go there. You're too young. We'll send you after your bar mitzvah. Uh, <laughs> if I went before I was 13, it would definitely make me gay. Um, and uh, <laughs> it turns out it did make me gay. Um, but <laughs> Surprise. But it happened after my bar mitzvah, and that was, that was my reward. And I finally got to go in that first year. Uh, when I was 13, uh, a manager called Shirley Grant, who represented everyone in um, the sort of northern suburbs of New York, she lived in New Jersey actually, came and auditioned the entire camp. And she chose, I don't know, eight to 10 of us that she would represent because um, I could sing loud, I guess, and do a bad British accent, which I still do. Uh, I was cast uh, in a Broadway show called The Little Prince and the Aviator. Um, I, I'm skipping some of the tears and hardship in between, but it ran, it ended up running about four weeks on Broadway, uh, at the, what is now the Neil Simon theater. It was then the Alvin theater. And in the cast with me was my pal, Anthony Rapp. Um, and it was both of our first Broadway shows. We were, um, I think he's a year or two younger than me. He was probably 12 and I was 13. I played young Michael York, who was the aviator, the kind of San Exuberi figure. Uh, and I did this crazy British accent. I'm sure it was horrific. Uh, but it was the closest that, you know, a Jew from Jersey could do. And, <laughs> and I remember... The head of Stage Door came, our artistic head, a guy named Jack Romano, who was very dear to me, very important, and whose opinion I, I respected deeply. And in one of the scenes, this is how long ago it was, I think I was playing like a shoeshine boy in Morocco because um, I had to play different roles. I was multifaceted. I said, Jack, how did you like my performance? And he said, you shine those shoes like they were the most important shoes on the planet. And I thought, that's good, right? And he said, no, they're just a pair of shoes. <laughs> Calm down. <laughs> and that was lesson number one. <laughs> like Effort doesn't necessarily equal uh, artistic greatness. The other thing that, that, you know, was sort of audacious and bizarre was that when I was 12, before I even went to Stage Door, I was in my first equity show, um, almost unbeknownst to my parents. They were not involved in any of this, and I, I think I somehow knew they, um, well, it didn't take a genius to know that in the 80s, um, if you were a suburban Jewish kid, your parents wanted you to go to medical school or or law school. Um, yeah. And so that's what I heard. And so I uh, uh, took a bus secretly to the next town, a few towns over actually, called Nanuet, where there was a giant mall. And I got off at the mall and walked through, uh, you know, half a mile of woods to get to what was then called the Coachlight Dinner Theater. And this was like a thousand seat in the round dinner theater. And I knew that they were scheduled to be doing uh, the King and I, and I knew that there was uh, a young kid in it, like a 12-year-old, uh, which would be Miss Anna's son. And so I stupidly, like something out of House of Blue Leaves, just walked to the producer's office, knocked on the door, and desperately started singing and doing my British accent, of which I was very pleased um, and uh, and proud. And uh, wouldn't you know it, she actually offered me the role, weirdly. <laughs> and I said, would you please write a note to my parents so that... <laughs> And I, I folded it up, put it in my pocket, took the bus home, and that night at dinner, I, I opened up the note and showed it to them. They thought I was crazy, but I that was that was my very first 
um, encounter uh, with professional theater. And I still um, treasure the memories. Karen Ziemba was in that cast. Can I ask if there's anybody in it? Yeah. Okay. So then in terms of education, you also attended Stanford and NYU Tisch and Lincoln Center Theater Directors Lab and Royal Academy of Dramatic Art and, of course, went to Stage Door Manor. Uh, did you... You mentioned Stage Door Manor in that story, but at what point... Um, are you saying, all right, this is what I want to do professionally. And out of all that education list I just rattled off, where did you start? All right. Well, there was no question that this was what I wanted to do professionally. I never, I mean, since I was seven, from the moment I saw Greece, I was like, this is my life. I just didn't understand what the profession was. Um, and I learned and it, it, as it evolved, um, I, uh, was at stage door for five years and the last two years, I split my summers. So I went for half a summer to uh, Royal Academy of Dramatic Art when I was 15. I was way too young. Everyone else was in college. And I'm taking a Shakespeare course. I was barely past puberty. They thought I was a girl when I got there and assigned me Portia. The quality of mercy <laughs> is not straight. Uh, from Merchant of Venice. Uh, and, you know, I said, I am a boy. Can I do a boy thing? I loved it and I loved being and that was the beginning of my love affair with with England and all things British and then the next summer I split uh, my summer between Carnegie Mellon summer school and stage door and I did there they had a six-week pre-college program uh, which I did with my oldest friend in the world um, or longest friend in the world Jonathan Mark Sherman um, and he had been in my bunk at um, at stage door and we went together to uh, this summer program and were taught by a whole roster of insanely talented people um, who were all inspiring. Um, but what I learned that summer was I don't want to go to Carnegie Mellon. Um, it was kind of, and they touted it as this, it, they said, this is going to be so intense. It's, it's like medical school for musical theater. Oof. And having already been steeped in musical theater since I was seven, I just thought, I don't think I need this. I just knew it's, you know, when your body sometimes is like, you need a salad, stop eating cheeseburgers. Yep. <laughs> That's, I felt at that moment, like, I think I just need to learn a bit about the world. So then I, I, you know, being the uh, striver that I am picked up, I think Lisa Birnbaum had written this college, college handbook, the woman who wrote the preppy handbook and the first page talked all about Stanford University. And being from New York, a picture of Stanford with like red tile Mediterranean roofs and palm trees made it look like you were going to Club Med. And I thought it was the most kind of exotic, beautiful place I'd ever seen. And then she said, it's also the most competitive, even more than the Ivies. Um, and so that became my goal. So I flew out to Stanford by myself and I knocked on the door of the person who was running the theater department at the time. Anna, um, uh, uh, Anna Devere Smith was about to come in. This is 86, 87. Um, and uh, I said, I want to be in your, in your theater department. I know you don't do official recommendations here or interviews, but can I sit and just chat to you and tell you what I've done? And at that point, I said, I've been in a Broadway show. I have I took over the directing of the shows at my high school as well, uh, because I, I sort of left this out. But our high school theater uh, director was a lovely guy named Mr. Swift, who bragged about not having seen a professional show in 30 years. And we lived all of 
19 miles from New York City. And he said, oh, I don't I haven't been into the city in forever. And he kind of sat in the back with a paperback book and a, a bag containing something alcoholic and said, you do it. It's fine. Um, so I, st- I had started directing already. Um, and I told them this and I knew that they had aspirations to beef up their theater department. Um, and I think that was helpful because I was a good student. I was definitely a, a very a, a very good student, but not I didn't get like a sixteen hundred on my SATs. Um, I think it was really moxie or chutzpah, as they say, that got me in um, because I, I touted my own achievements and how I was going to help them. I said, let me make this easier for you. Um, this is not for me, but this is an opportunity for you. I uh, quickly realized it wasn't the place for me at the time. Um, and I ended up for the next year transferring to NYU Film School, where I made a lot of movies, loved it, and then kept adding majors. So I ended up triple majoring there in film economics, just because I wanted to challenge myself um, and learn about I guess I was mostly learning macroeconomics, not really finance or, you know, doing budgets. But I imagined that with that credibility, I could be a big time Hollywood producer. Um, I had no idea what that really meant, but it sounded good. And then I added art history because we were in New York and there was so much delicious art everywhere. And there was a class taught by, I think it was Matthew Broderick's mother, Professor Broderick, called Art and Sculpture in New York. And Every class was on site at a different museum. I mean, imagine. And this was for wow. cop. So we were, and in all the boroughs. Um, so it was a just an amazing experience. And then that that opened me up to understanding what was so moving and um, important and contextual about fine art, which hadn't been on my radar really. And I added that as another major. I just wanted to do a deep dive. It was a, a really wonderful experience. That is so interesting. I, I really respect that you just went out and you're like, this is the path I'm going to make for myself. And then had also, uh, you, got, you had the chutzpah to get in, but then also, I guess the confidence or naivete, I don't know, to be able to then say, well, this isn't for me, I'm going to do something else and just continue to pivot because a lot of people are afraid of that. They're afraid to fail fast. Uh, I think it's really interesting. This is something I always say to actors when we're starting in a room. You have to first understand that you're never going to be perfect before you can be good, right? So that's like they say, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And it is essential to being an artist. I mean, to being a human, but to being an artist I think when I started writing, I was always so scared to not immediately write the exact correct thing. And then one of my very dear friends is uh, Jessica Queller, who I was in my first play with after college um, called Peacetime, which is a play directed by Pam Berlin. When I started to write, she said, you have to start with a spew. You have to start with something that you tell yourself is not going to be good write that, put it in a drawer overnight, and then go back the next day. And if there's one idea that's new and fresh and different, that's a score. That's a win. Cross the rest out and keep that one thing. And that was the very beginning of, of me finally having the courage to write, which included being wrong. You've seen sometimes this happens subconsciously with actors in a room. They'll get up you know, to do a run through or a moment where everyone's feeling a bit of pressure and make what seems like a really obvious mistake to me, but I think subconsciously it's the need to like just 
tear something, mess something up so that the rest of the performance feels uh, less pressurized. Um, better by comparison. Yeah, we've already yeah, yeah. we've already broken a glass, so let's have fun now. All right, so you've got all this <laughs> education, and you're. It sounds so far like you're doing everything, um, pursuing acting. It, it, like, are you still trying to write and produce at the same time, or still be an actor? Or where did where did the path sort of become clear that you wanted to be more on the creative side? I think by the time um, I was at college, I started to understand. Um, that I wanted to look on the other side of the table, that I wanted to um, produce, create, tell stories. Uh, interestingly, my first job out of school was um, at J. Walter Thompson. That's where I went. Everyone sort of called me Dookie Hauser because I was 21, but I literally looked like 13. I looked so young. And I remember... Um, you'll, I you'll get facial hair one day, don't worry. All, all I wanted was for one of the... The, like I wanted to have like an assistant like like I saw in the movies and on TV and for someone to answer the phone and say Mr. Greenberg's office like, <laughs> like we're in a 1950s movie and um, we shared them there I guess I was a junior producer and I had to share an assistant with one or two other people and for those people I remember <laughs> she would answer the phone and say Mr. Seals's office Miss Berenstein's office whatever it is and then for me she'd say production and I was like um <laughs> I'm curious, why don't you say my name when you answer my phone? And she was like, because I don't want to. <laughs> and it became my goal. I mean, I finally won her over. It took like a year to like win enough respect for her to say my to say Mr. Greenberg's office. But she'd been there a while and she had standards. <laughs> like, <laughs> and um, that was one of my proudest achievements there. But after about two years... I directed kind of spec commercials and I helped them with existing clients and we did things that were great adventures. But like for Rolex, we had to go, I, I had to set up this shoot where we went all over the world interviewing all the people in those ads and those Rolex ads. I'm a Rolex achiever. I sell the Northwest Passage or Chris Everett, you know, let's go meet her at her tennis court in Boca Raton. And um, because I was like 21 and you know, basically lived on Taco Bell. Um, I had these budgets and I'm like, oh, we could do this for one tenth. We'll stay at the Marriott Courtyard. We'll eat at Taco Bell. It'll be great. And I remember one of the, one of the, um, uh, I guess, account executives who was like, I have given up my life for this. We're staying at the Four Seasons and we're eating at these expensive places. And that was a real eye opener about, you know, how that particular um, business worked. I I don't think it's the same at this point, but it was sort of like we are we are going to make you miserable, but then we'll pay you and ply you with luxury items. Hang on, everybody. We're just going to take a quick break. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Now we're back. As I started to understand that, I just thought, well, why don't I just do something I, you know, where we actually enjoy ourselves um, and I don't have to, like, sleep at a $1,000 a night hotel to somehow feel justified in my existence. Um, and at that point, I made the unwise decision to go back to acting. I left J. Walter Thompson. I remember um, I had denied myself seeing any shows, any theater for almost two years. I think because like a smoker who had quit, I thought once I go, I'm going to be sucked back in and I will not be able to stay away. And it happened with um, a show I had always loved, Falsettos. And uh, a show called Romance in Hard Times was playing. Billy Porter was in it. It was his first show um, at the public. Uh, And Lilius White, Alex Corey, I think David Warren directed it. Anyway, it was, I mean, the music was just glorious. And I went back three times in one week. I couldn't stop. And and then I just said, I love this too much. This feels so right. I'm going to leave. And then from there, I did leave and I... I did like an internship with Chris Bono, public relations. I love Chris. I learned a lot about the business from that perspective there as I was auditioning. Um, And then I went on to be in some commercials and I I did this acting class with Bill Esper who taught me not to shine shoes like they were the most important shoes in the world and to just be and that you are enough. And a lot about the the craft of acting, which I, I truly appreciated and also I think made me a better human being just the idea of tuning into other people and being connected. I went uh, on tour for a little bit in Greece, Das Musical. Uh, that was a Jeff Calhoun-directed version with a lot of pink, um, and it was you know, certainly a lot of fun to be in. Although what they didn't tell me when they cast me, I was playing the very deep and complex nuanced role of Eugene, the nerd, and that was when I wore fake glasses to auditions before I needed actual glasses (laughs) and in that version they had created a a, an acapella singing group that included eugene and his other nerdy friends and we were supposed to be like um forever plaid but um i can't sing that well i mean i sing for fun but i i i mean part singing it was it was a nightmare and so all i remember from the months that i was on that tour was like stuffing wax in my ears so i couldn't hear the people singing next to me <laughs> and not ruin the show. Basically, that's all I wanted to do was not embarrass myself and, and everyone and the Weislers who were producing the show. But that, that was um, a great time. And then I continued to act. I did a few. I came out to L.A. for a bit. I did some TV shows. I was on Shaky Ground and Knott's Landing and uh, Step by Step. And, you know, I was a fine actor. I was good enough to work, but I never felt like this was uh, that was the defining thing that I did, uh, nor did I feel like it was the best that I could do. So I just kept striving and I thought I want to create stuff and I I went back again I went to that Lincoln Center Directors Lab and sort of 
just learned to direct um, basically by cobbling together skills, the best of what I had seen from the other side um, and um, reading everything I could get my hands on. And I then started directing for free. And I just sort of said, what can I do for you? Um, and uh, I had a dear friend from high school, Pam Pariso, who uh, at the time was running the uh, the Helen Hayes Theater in Nyack, which was a regional theater um, not far from where we both grew up. And I said, I want to direct. And she said, uh, that's well, you know, but we're hiring experienced directors. <laughs> this is a professional <laughs> endeavor. Um, and I said, well, can I do something for free? I'll put together a concert called In the Works, um, and it'll all be, you know, basically songs from shows by people that I know now that are sort of bubbling up. And at the time, that was Jason Robert Brown. I just made the show and, and got people to do it um, with talent. And I think based on that, they said, if you want to do a show here, an actual show, then pitch it. And so the first thing, I think they wanted to do Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, which I knew and loved. And I said, okay, um, I'm going to have uh, my friend at the time, Andrew Lippa, is going to redo all the arrangements. And Kim Grigsby, um, who was someone I had known um, through Steve Marzullo, uh, was a new conductor back then. And she's going to conduct it. And I somehow got to Andrew McArdle, probably through Seth Rudensky or something. And she wanted to be the narrator. And with that, I put together a little package, entrepreneurial type, and they said, all right, we'll do it. And then that went very well. And then they said, do you want to do Jesus Christ Superstar next? Um, and I was like, what's it about? And <laughs> they said, um, get the cliff notes. And I did. And, and I knew and loved Billy Porter. And I thought he was being used um, kind of as the comic relief in every show back then. He had been in Greece, same production I was in. And I, I just, I knew he was a phenomenal actor with a great soulfulness and depth of feeling. And, and he uh, agreed to play Jesus. And the show went very well. Rosie O'Donnell came to see it. And I remember she talked about it on her show and we got to be on NBC. It was like lot, lots of interesting things happened. The next day, the review came out in the New York Times when they still reviewed things outside of New York. And it was a rave. And then all of a sudden, I just thought, wow, this is Business got a lot of ups and downs, as they say in Dreamgirls. <laughs> a lot of opportunities started happening after that. I just remember the feeling of great, unrestrained creativity at the time and ballsiness that I had nothing to lose. But Tim Rice called me <laughs> and said, you know, I'm very curious about this version. Um, I, you know, obviously I'm impressed with, with what I'm hearing. And I was going over to London to direct a play, my first play there at a small pub theater called the King's Head. Um, and I said, well, I'm going to be there in a couple of weeks. I would love to meet you. And he said, great. Do you, can you bring an archival video of, of the show? And at the time there weren't really archival videos. There was no internet. We couldn't just share things like right. this or maybe there was, but I didn't know about it. So I literally took like my parents' video camera, gigantic on my shoulder and I thought I was being cheeky and hiding in the back. And at this point, I'm sure equity could arrest me for it, but I filmed it <laughs> from the back and um, I brought the videos to London and gave it to him. And he said, great. Oh, I've got to show Gail Edwards this, who was scheduled to direct the next version on Broadway. And I just, my heart sank because I thought he was going to offer me to direct it immediately on Broadway. And that was that. But that show was really, you know, what 
what became the beginning of this whole career. Once I decided to direct, you know, initially I was still doing a few plays as an actor. Acting was my day job because, as you know, there are, you know, between one and 70 actors in a play, but there's always one director. So there's right. a lot less jobs. And uh, people want directors with experience. And I think it does take about 10 years to cultivate a career where you can make any kind of living. So for those 10 years, I knew I had to do something and I didn't want to keep acting and it wasn't enough. And my other sort of best friend, uh, very close friend, Jeffrey Seller, had a show called De La Guarda downtown at the time. And he was like, "Um, well, you need a job. Do you want to? do uh marketing and i was like i don't i don't know how to do marketing he was like figure it out you're smart <laughs> figure it out so i took a job doing marketing for de la guarda and spent um several months just creating outlets at different universities um ticketing outlets frequent flyer programs because de la guarda had a lot of flying in it and i just figured out how to how to sell tickets and it went pretty well and then they said do you want to keep doing it and i was like well i guess and it was a part of what would become Broadway.com. Wow. And um, at that uh, place called Theater Direct, uh, I said something to uh, one of the people working there at the time, Bob Hoffman, who's now at Schubert Ticket Sales. He, I, I said, I feel like all of the groups that are coming to see this are affiliated with schools. And there should be some kind of program where you can add value to a school trip by including a workshop. You know, kind of like I had done as an actor at, you know, Dallas Theater Center, Indiana Rep, wherever you were acting, there would always be a school group. And I was always the one who volunteered to go teach the class because I, I enjoyed that. So we started something called Broadway Classroom. Um, and Pam, my friend at the time, had left the theater in Nyack and was the creative director for the Weislers. Um, and she, had, I think, was dealing with Chicago I think Annie Get Your Gun was maybe playing. Um, and she wanted a new job. She wanted to try something new. And I convinced her to come over. And Henry McIntosh owned Theater Direct at the time. And he agreed to to fund this venture called Broadway Classroom, um, which then grew and grew and grew over many, many years. And it grew too big as my career grew and Pam's career as a producer grew. And so we left and started our own spinoff education program that really is all centered on um, an event called the Broadway Teachers Workshop. Um, and this was our creation. We had created it for um, initially as part of Broadway Classroom, um, but when we left, they, they stopped doing it and we just sort of made it our own uh, baby. Um, and it's something that has now been going for 23 years and we have over a thousand theater teachers come to New York every summer uh, and in different groupings do workshops with Broadway people. Uh, I mean, the finest artists and cast members. We've had everyone from Stephen Sondheim, Lynn, Manuel, everyone, Bobby Lopez, just anytime someone um, is sort of high achieving on Broadway and generous of spirit, they sort of come and share their stuff with their teachers. Um, Cause these are all, this is a reflection of all the people that have fueled and inspired us. Um, and it has become for me a wonderful touchstone, a time for gratitude, a time for connection, um, and selfishly a time to call in other people to teach who I'm curious about. Because being a director, you're alone in the room all the time, and you're, I'm not watching anyone else. So I can call you know, Alex Timbers and say, would you teach a class? And he's done a bunch. 
um, or anyone like that that I think is wonderful. It's just a real nourishing experience. And for these teachers that come in, it's um, a three-day program where they're in New York and they do probably 10 workshops over three days and they see four Broadway shows and they meet with the casts and they, they meet with each other. Um, and these are people that like, like I was when I was in, in junior high, uh, they're islands in their towns. And then they come together the way I went to stage door and found my people. They get to be with each other and, and figure out how do we deal with the challenges facing us as arts educators today and also feel the value and the love from the Broadway community because we are all peers and we're all doing the same thing and we're all feeding into the same sort of brain trust of theater uh, and creators. This is a group of people who really, obviously, those of us who make our living doing this, do it not obviously for money, but because we believe it matters, that what you put into the world makes a difference and that you can help enlarge people's minds and hearts based on what you write and inspire in other people to do the same and to think maybe a little bit outside of um, what they know. Wow. Well, uh, your toes must hurt from all those names you dropped. Um, (laughs) that's quite, quite a story where like everybody, your whole, your whole story, your whole backstory is just this, this list of rising talent that all came up together. It's so fascinating. And I, and I, I love all of that. I want to shift over to the writing side of things. And of course it's going to take us to Dracula, but before I get there, I just want to touch on the fact that you did either working or worked on Tangled a musical adaptation for Disney. Um, people keep telling me I look like a young Flynn writer. I just want to put that out there. Uh, oh, you'd be you'd be perfect casting. There you go. There um, you go. So I, I, at Alan, least let me audition for it. If you don't mind leaving your family and getting on the, one of the two cruise ships on the <laughs> Disney Cruise Line that are currently featuring the production I directed, um, I, I'll bet you'd have a pretty good shot at it. Wait, I just got off the wonder. What ships are is it being performed on? I don't even know if it's the dream, the magic, the exclamation point. I forget the names. <laughs> I've done a few, and I love Disney. The Cruise Wish Line. is the new cool. one, and I think the Triton is the un. It hasn't set sail yet. The one they're finishing, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I think the Dream was the one we started it on. Yeah, the Dream. That, the Dream and the Wonder, the two originals. Oh no! Then the Dream was. That was a show called Disney's Believe that I I put together with Kirsten Childs, um, and that, that I just, is I just watched that. Yeah, it's like a jukebox musical yeah. of, of of Disney stuff, but it's um, I have no idea where it is right now because the way they work Disney, unlike a Broadway contract where you remain connected to your work and come in and look at it, and and all of the people working on it are on your team. Uh, at Disney, you create it and leave and they own it. Yeah. Sort of the way Disney does with all their IP, you know? I mean, all of the, is it Mary Blair who did all that gorgeous artwork in the 50s and 60s? Like, if you look at It's a Small World, you know that, just yeah. that style, very distinctive. Um, but most people don't know that it was Mary Blair. They just know it's Disney. It's part of, you know, kind of the joy and part of the gig working for them. So I haven't seen that show in years. Um, but yet I see people all the time with my name on their resume. <laughs> I don't know any of them. Um, That's funny. Yeah, it was three, four weeks ago now. Yeah, it was the first end of August. We, we did an, an Alaska cruise 
uh, out of Vancouver on the on the Wonder. So I literally That's just so watched great. your show. Uh, okay, Dracula. Like working with Steve Rosen has got to be a treat in general, anyway. Just because little little Stevie here is is such a, a guy. Uh, he was on my radar after the other Josh Cohen and. Um, like the two of you guys hanging out, like you're funny together individually. You're also funny. Like coming together though, where, when did you start working with Steve? And then the two of you co-wrote Dracula, which came into my life in 2020 when we originally made it as a radio comedy here on Broadway Podcast Network, which still exists. And then now in 2023, it's opening off Broadway. Like the story behind how all this stuff just like meshes together is fascinating. It is amazing. I, I, you know, I first met Steve, I was programming a series at Ars Nova called Broadway Spotlight. And Ars Nova is also very close to me because I was one of the original sort of founders of it. Jenny Steingart um, is a dear friend from camp from when we were kids. And her, um, as as people know, if they look at the etched glass when you walk in on the right, the entire um, theater uh, was founded as an homage to her brother Gabe, who died very young, who was this lovely, talented creature. Uh, and uh, we were programming what I thought was interesting people from shows who had not yet found their stardom. and But they were all doing interesting things in shows. And so I, I think at the time... Uh, we had, I mean, Adina Menzel was in The Wild Party, um, and she came in and did a thing about her time as a wedding band singer in Long Island, which was hilarious. Uh, Steve, I called because I saw him in Spamalot, and I thought he was really funny, and I knew his girlfriend at the time, Mona, who was working at Tara Rubin's office with one of my best friends, Eric Woodall, who you also know. Um, and uh, he came in, Steve, and he did this crazy, hilarious show. And afterwards, I just thought, I want to know you. I want to work with you. Um, and then uh, years ago, I was hired to direct a small national tour of Guys and Dolls that was kind of using the set and costumes, physical production from um, the Des Mackinoff one that he had been in. We did, you know, we sort of took it and did did our own version but um, I asked him to play Nathan Detroit, and he was great, and we became really good buddies then and learned how similar our backgrounds are. Just bizarrely, we both have parents who grew up in the same neighborhood in New York, and uh, our fathers are both pediatric dentists, so specific. Um, Weird. And just knew, uh, had, had a great shorthand. We both grew up with parents who listened to the same comedy albums, the, you know, uh, the Nichols in May and the 2,000-year-old man. But my father's stuff and his father's stuff was all born in the Catskills. So it was mm. Mel Brooks, Sid Caesar, um, old school, old school, laughter on the 23rd floor kind of stuff. And we both have a deep respect and affection for it, which is where, you know, later my um, relationship with Gary Marshall on Happy Days became so... Uh, formative for me. But with Steve, we just would make each other laugh. And um, at one point, I had been directing some Christmas shows for uh, the Bucks County Playhouse. And Robin Goodman, who's a good pal, um, said, do you want to do another one this year? And I said, yes, but might I just write one for you instead of doing another, you know, existing uh, Christmas show? And I went to and she said, OK, but here are your parameters. And I 
you know, whatever it was, five people, no set, cheap. Um, and I, I went to Steve and proposed that we do it. And we had a grand time and we created Ebenezer Scrooge's big Your Town Here Christmas show, which was written almost like in Mad Libs so that you can fill in the blanks. And it's now, I can push it, it's now published um, by yeah, one of those companies. <laughs> did it Broadway licensing, I think. Um, but uh, it ran for four years there, and now it's been running for five years at the Old Globe, where it's Ebenezer Scrooge's big San Diego Christmas show. And Chris Sieber, our pal, is going to star this year as Scrooge in it. Oh, um, fun. Be more excited. Um, and I love, love, love doing it out there. Uh, and it was a ton of fun doing it at um, Bucks County, too. Hang on, everybody. We're just going to take a quick break. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, now we're back. After that, Andrew Cato, who runs the Maltz Jupiter, said, uh, I love what you guys did with that. Could you do something similar with Dracula? Um, and I said, yes, because I'm just a yes and person. And I went to Steve and he said, sure, let's let's give it a shot. Um, and we wrote this wacky version of Dracula that, I mean, when he when Andrew saw the first draft, he said, I'll produce it. So the fact that he was with us, you know, even as the show was very nascent, um, can't be underestimated. It was a huge part of our development. And we did it down there just before the pandemic and learned a lot. And then we went to Chicago Shakes where Rick Boynton, this brilliant dramaturg and friend, gave us amazing notes. And then the world stopped. And then I was lucky enough to meet you and Dory. And um, we we created this great radio play, which, you know, was inspired by the fact that my father, um, having ha- having seen a reading of Dracula before it was fully produced uh, in Florida, because he lives in Florida, naturally, had never seen a reading of a play. And he kept calling it my radio play because he thought it was like Woody Allen, like in the olden days, <laughs> drop their pages. And he, he would say, how's your radio play doing? And I'd say, well, it's a it's a play. But yes, it's, it's doing good. Um, and so I thought of that and we did it. We made this wonderful radio play with an insanely talented cast. Um, and it, it kept us sane, really, during the pandemic. So coming back to Dracula, the, the, so the radio play that we did, Chris Sieber was Dracula. You had Laura Benanti, Alex Brightman, James Monroe, Eichelhart, Ashley Park, Annalie Ashford, John Stamos had a cameo in there, uh, Rob McClure, Jeff Creedy, Orv Mendoza, Richard Kind, one of my favorite people in the whole world. Um, 
which every time we work together, he falls asleep. I don't, I, I take it personally, <laughs> but, um, the whole, I mean, and then our next podcast was all Richard kind. I know. And Julie Halston. I know. Um, and so when I was in the room with Julie and Richard recording, I I'm do, I'm doing the recording with, with Julie and I turn around and Richard's like in the back of the room asleep. I've got some He's wonderful. Busy man. He's a very busy man. He's a busy man. I get it. Um, no, I love, I love Richard. He and I, um, interestingly, Steve connected us when we were, um, doing the first recast in London of Guys and Dolls. Um, so I had directed Guys and Dolls that opened at the Savoy um, with uh, uh, David Haig and Sophie Thompson. And uh, when we knew that Rebel Wilson was coming into it later in the year, but um, we, there was another cast in between uh, with the wonderful, wonderful Samantha Spiro, who I love so much and I wish she lived here because I want her to be in everything. And I'm crossing my fingers, if you're listening, Sam, that you'll do Dracula when we bring it to London because um, she's right in that world. But she was a wonderful Adelaide and um, we needed Nathan. And I called Richard and he was like, what the heck? I'll come over. And um, <laughs> seeing him, you know, this cast that had rehearsed um, what to them was, I mean, Guys and Dolls is revered in, in England. Um, it's almost Shakespearean to them. And there's a lot of intellectualizing of like, what is the New York Jewish point of view on this moment? What, what, what would Nathan do? What, what would he think? <laughs> and then cut to Richard, who was like, all right, I'm going to fall on the ground here. You're going to see my ass crack for a second. Then I'm going to get a laugh. He count to three, turn your head to the left, cough, and then say your line. <laughs> so the, the actors were a little um, astonished, to say the least. Right. Where am I? Can I get some good food <laughs> over here? <laughs> but he was brilliant. He is so awesome. I love working with Richard. But um, the cast, the cast now off Broadway. Uh, I mean, Jordan Boatman, Arnie Burton, Arnie, freaking Arnie Burton, like has me in stitches playing the female characters. James Daly. I love uh, who's Dracula. Um, how did you find James? By the way, so James came with the show from Canada, and this is his off Broadway debut, right? Yeah, it's his New York debut. Yeah. Uh, I had heard about James through um, uh, Louise Petra, um, who was starring as Edith Piaf in um, Piaf Dietrich, which we were doing in Toronto, and we had done uh, in Montreal as well at the Siegel Center, um, kept talking about this wonderful, talented young guy who was doing this cabaret that was going to tour Canada. And he needs an Um, eight-pack. Yes. Um, But he had also been at the Shaw Festival for six, seven seasons doing everything from Stoppard to Shaw to Master Harold and the Boys. Um, and uh, I I remember she kept saying, everyone said, you need to meet him. You need to audition him. You're going to love him. He's hilarious. He, he has your sense of humor. And when we were casting it for Montreal, uh, Lisa Rubin, who's the artistic director at the Siegel Center, again, said the same thing. You need to meet this guy. And so we went to Toronto for auditions. And he couldn't come in because um, he had a bike accident and had broken his arm that morning. Um, and he was also at the Shaw Festival, which is like a two-hour drive back to back to Toronto. Well, there's the problem. Um, he was biking when he should have been driving. However, yeah, exactly. I don't think he was biking to Toronto. But um, <laughs> he got on a Zoom with his arm freshly in a cast in a sling and was like, hey, guys, how you doing? And I said, you're just going to do an audition today. <laughs> that this was an extraordinarily um, generous 
of spirit and low drama and can do personality and was hilarious and lovely and immediately I said yes let's let's do this and he was phenomenal in the role he came even for rehearsal he had to come a week and a half late into that process in Canada because he was still under contract to Shaw and I had gone up there I saw him in a bunch of shows and then we worked together a couple of days just to like get him ready and then I went and rehearsed with everybody else and then he came and joined but you know literally his first words in rehearsal are Happy to be here, easy to work with. <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that. I'm sure it was half joking, but it's very real. Um, just a joy to work with him. So I knew um, that I wanted him to come to New York and do this. And Steve came up and saw the show in Montreal and was immediately um, of the same opinion. And then Drew and Dane, our producers, came up to see the show and sort of were on board quickly as well. And we showed him to Dory. Um, in the actual legal archival, um, and she said, he's wonderful. Um, I think this is worth it um, because it, there's an expense and there is more work involved and legal paperwork and visa stuff um, involved in bringing someone internationally. But yes, I love him. I'm so glad he's there and he's, he's hilarious and fearless and he can take his shirt off and please a lot of people. So that's a bonus too. Well, so speaking of taking your shirt off, pleasing people and being hard to work with. Andrew Keenan Bolger also. <laughs> rounds Another up. one. I, Andrew, Andrew is just one of the most uh, positive and kind hearted and silly and inventive and open actors I've met. And yeah. it's interesting because he hadn't been the first person in my head when I was thinking about this. But the minute he, I think we had called him in for crime and punishment and initially for a similar role in that. And he wrote a note to me and Steve and said, I can't do this, but I love it. I love what you're writing. I get your humor. I want to be in one of your shows. So then when we were starting to cast this, we both said, Andrew, let's, let's go to Andrew. Um, and he gave amazing auditions and was also just generous, ego-free. And so, you know, um, such a fountain as opposed to, I guess, a drain. <laughs> he, just, he came. He came and just had so so much to give. Um, that's why I'm going to title and, this episode: "Be a Fountain, Not a Drain." That's that is one of my you know that is one of my mantras. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I love it actually, and I remember um, one of my fondest roles I've ever seen Arnie in uh, was was when he was with Christian Borle in um, Peter and the Starcatcher, and and with Steve Steve Rosen was in that as well. What what? Um, what? I gotta go back and yeah. refresh. Oh my god, you're right. You're <clears> right. Off yeah, um, but Arnie was Arnie is the first person to play Mina and Van Helsing. So in our first 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 reading in New York City, it was Michael Yuri as Dracula, and um, Creedy was in it, and um, lots of great people. But um, Arnie was in it from the beginning and showed us what it could be, and he kind of shined a light. He was a beacon, and then he couldn't do it for the next couple of. Uh, productions, but we had, of course, had in the back of our minds. We'd love for when it comes back to New York for Arnie to to come back to the role. Um, and I'm so glad and grateful that he did, and that we found Jordan Boatman, who's insanely lovely, um, and uh, like me, has a fondness for gratuitously lapsing into British accents. And um, she and I just share a sense of humor and a sensibility. Um, and she's, I can't speak highly enough of 
how uh, open-hearted and talented she is and, and game. And then Ellen Harvey, who I'd admired for years in, in numerous uh, shows, not the least of which was the tour of High School Musical <laughs> that I saw the Kodak in L.A. And I remember she played the gym teacher or no, the drama teacher. And I just thought, I love that woman. I love her. And I'm so glad and grateful to be working with her now because she's hilarious in the show and so precise about everything she does. She is uh, a craftsperson of the highest degree and um, very clear and everything she does is thought through beautifully. The show, the show itself is amazing, and there's a lot more characters than those five principles. And we, I'm not going to get into the specifics of multiple people playing multiple people because I go over that in detail with Andrew in our episode, episode 286. I, I interviewed Andrew Keen Bolger as well. Um, but goodness, the show it's doing so well. The reviews are great, and I, I am so happy to see it. Uh, continue to evolve because as somebody um, who does straddle the line between the creative and the, I guess, or behind the camera, in front of the camera, behind the curtain, in front of the curtain, I, it's so cool to see uh, how it's working in multiple mediums all at the same time. Thank you. I, I mean, I think they're all connected and um, one feeds the other and, and helps keep you sharp in different ways. Balance in all things. I, I love it. And I'm very grateful to be able to do more than one thing. And, um, you know, writing and directing um, are uh, are related in many ways, but sometimes you have to kind of take one hat off and put the other on. Um, and when Steve and I write together, there's a little piece of me that's thinking in broad strokes like a director, you know, oh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for puppets here. Uh, there's going to be a lot of opportunities for silliness here. Uh, we'll put physical bits in here. But I don't actually think on a granular level about what it's going to be. I just know that this is a, this is a field of opportunity. Um, and then once we get into rehearsals or pre-production, I take off the writer hat and give it to Steve and then um, I'm just the director and we kind of work when we work together it's almost like being on a TV show you know because when you're a writer on a TV show they're creating everything the writers are the producers the writers are setting the tone um, and and making all the calls that a director normally does so a director on a TV show is almost more like a choreographer stage manager yeah. and um, the writers on a TV show are writers and directors basically that's really cool okay um well everybody needs to go go to the new world stages see the show uh currently um limited run through january yeah yeah through the holidays yeah. uh it's so much fun it's so i mean the audiences have been insane yeah. it's like a party there every night and um it is genuinely ridiculous silly campy strangely sexy it, it, what it's not really is scary but no not at all it's 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 everything else <laughs> it's what it, uh, something i i heard it described as once was like a combination of mel brooks meets meets monty python to tell the story of dracula and like that yes is, that's meets, perfect probably meets a little bit of charles ludlam <laughs> um, all you right got, you gotta throw that in yeah okay so uh three questions i ask everyone that wrap up the episodes the first one just simply is what motivates you what motivates me uh is well my partner my dog uh, my family my friends and 
the knowledge that there is always more to tell and that we can keep evolving and keep getting better. And I think the notion of just putting good things into the world really does motivate me. It sounds a little sappy, but um, it is true. And that with every project, it's like a new beginning. It's like having a new child and the sky's the limit. Um, and I love that feeling of, of possibility. What advice would you give to your younger self and younger people listening now starting out down a similar path? All the things that you think are your greatest liabilities are going to become your greatest virtues. So all the quirks, the weird sense of humor, the weird way you dress, the weird way you think, all those crevices of your mind that you think are dark or unappealing or different are the things that make you of value and that make you a unique artist with something to share. And that's what people want is for you to share the emotional intelligence of shining a little light on those dark corners that we don't talk about every day. And if you're just talking about what everyone else is talking about, then it's then it's a trope, then it's a cliche. So train yourself to listen to that. Makes people not feel alone when they can hear Exactly. It. Yeah, they hear that. Okay, last question then. Hardest one, if you could only see one show for the rest of your life, but you can see it as many times as you want, what would you see? That's so easy, Dream Girls. Yeah? I already saw it 21 times when I was a kid with my bar mitzvah money. I used to go every Saturday, <laughs> um, usually with Jonathan Mark Sherman. Um, but yes, and we had a close friend, Judy Gilbert, Usherette, Imperial Theater. She knew us, and sometimes we paid. Sometimes we were just sneaking in intermission, um, and she'd like show us to seats. But we were so young or young looking that nobody suspected. You went second acted it all the time. I've never done oh, that. I, I feel like I need to do that one time in my life. I know. I wonder if they're stricter now. We only got caught once when we were second acting nine and um, William Ivy Long was there in the back and he saved us. Like, oh, these kids are with me. Literally, he said that. Because I think we just figured, who's going to doubt it? We'll just say, right. we're looking for our parents. We're lost. We're from the suburbs. But I think <laughs> The ushers were on to us. We're looking for Times Square. Anyone seen it? <laughs> Basically. <laughs> Where's Howard Johnson's? I ordered a grilled cheese with bacon. <laughs> Why am I a teenager talking like an old lady? <laughs> uh, okay. Where can we find you online on the social medias? Uh, you can find me online at my name, GordonGreenberg.com. And I don't know what my social medias are. I think they're my name. Just type in my name. Probably. And you find it. Cool. Nobody type in my name <laughs> i'm at theater underscore podcast on threads instagram tiktok and official theater podcast on the fosse book facebook for those who don't speak me uh leave a rating and a review wherever you're listening help spread the word tell your friends thank the jukebox the ghost for the intro and outro music and gordon lee greenberg thank you so much <laughs> for this incredible you, story. Like, I, I feel like this whole podcast was just me listening to a story. It was so much fun. You're so easy to talk to. Well, thanks. It helps that we were, we were at a Kenny Loggins concert together not not seven days ago. Was it se <laughs> it's last week? Yeah, probably seven. I years. think so. Yeah. <laughs> Danger zone, baby. Take a deep breath, make the world a little colorful. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work 
or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.